Amen. Well, good morning, church family. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're in the book of Exodus this morning, continuing in our storyline of Scripture uh, series. And a promise was made to Abraham to have a child. That child's name was Isaac. We just saw a child dedication for a little boy named Isaac. And then Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, they find themselves in the land of Egypt when we come to the beginning of the book of Exodus. Look with me at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. These are the sons of Jacob. These are the grandchildren of Abraham that were promised to him all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. The name Exodus in, is, is a, a Greek word, a meaning departure or exit. And what we're going to see in this book is God exiting his people from Egypt and, and getting them prepared and ready to enter into the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. Uh, in Hebrew, the, the, the name of this book, the Hebrew Bible, it's not called Exodus. It's called a Shemot, which means names, which is named after uh, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names. In fact, the first word in Hebrew in the book of Exodus is and. Uh, it's, it's really just meant to continue on the story. The Bible is one story. Genesis just flows right into the book of Exodus. Now, of course, the, the sons of Jacob, the grandchildren of Abraham, they ended up in Egypt because uh, the brothers gained up on one brother, a favored brother, Joseph, sold him into slavery. He was a slave, then he was imprisoned. And then all of a sudden, by, by the hand of God, he becomes the prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world. That is how they all, ends up, how they all ended up there in Egypt. But when we come to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so Joseph's legacy uh, had been lost in the land of Egypt. The, the privileged position that the people of Israel enjoyed in this, in this massive nation had deteriorated. And in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, but the more they were oppressed, the, the people started to be oppressed. Now, this was predicted by God in Genesis chapter 15. He said they would live in a foreign land and they would be afflicted there for 400 years. So the people were being oppressed. It says the more they were oppressed, though, notice this, Exodus 1, verse 12, the more they oppressed, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You see what's happening here. Again, Exodus is just a continuation from the book of Genesis. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 28, God gave this blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Look at Exodus 1, 12. It's coming true. They are multiplying. The promise made to Abraham that they would grow into a great nation is coming true. And the promise that they would be afflicted or the, the prophecy that they would be afflicted in a foreign land is also coming true from Genesis chapter 15. 
It says in chapter 1, verse 12, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they enslaved them, they oppressed them, but they continued to multiply. Then the Pharaoh decided to start murdering Hebrew babies. This is when Moses is born and Moses survives this, this, this genocidal act by the Pharaoh of Egypt by being put into a basket and laid in the water. The basket which is made from the same materials as the ark. We have this other, this new water rescue in the book of Exodus. Moses gets lifted up out of, the, out of this little tiny ark into the hands of, of Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses ends up finding himself in the privileged position of being a, a, really a, an adopted grandchild of the Pharaoh. But Moses still has a heart and a burden for his people. He tries to rescue them and save them. He murders an Egyptian trying to save some of his own people. And ends up fleeing as an enemy of the state, as a fugitive for 40 years. So there's 400 years of waiting for God to step in. Then there's these 40 years. It seems like Moses is going to do something. It seems like he is this new Noah, this new chosen one who's going to make things right. But he's gone to the land of Midian. There he meets his wife at a well, just like Jacob met his wife at a well. You see how God continually does things according to the same pattern. And this is how the book of Exodus begins. The book of Exodus follows a very clear three-part structure. Let, let me show you uh, what I mean here. It, it begins with, with the rescue. That's what Moses tried to initiate in chapter 2. And that takes us through the first 18 chapters. It starts with the rescue. Then we're given the rules where God lays down the Ten Commandments on, on Mount Sinai. That's chapters 19 through 24. And then God wants to zero in on his relationship with the people in chapters 24 through 40. Rescue, rules and relationship. And what we're going to see in the story is that God is determined to deliver his people because he desires to dwell among his people. This is what really the whole book of Exodus is about. Exodus is not just a story of the people of Israel of how they got out of Egypt. It's a story that reveals the very character of God, that God was determined to deliver his people because he wants to dwell among his people. And so we begin with the rescue. Moses tried to initiate the rescue on his own terms, didn't go so well. He ends up in Midian for 40 years. Now God is going to initiate the rescue. Look at Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24. Exodus 2 and verse 24. It says, God heard their groaning and remembered, notice this, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered the promise that he had made, the covenant agreement that he had established with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And it's because God is faithful to his promises that he is going to act, that he is going to engage in this rescue mission. Exodus chapter 3 is one of the most familiar stories in the book of Exodus. Moses is out farming with his, or he's shepherding his, his father-in-law Jethro's flock and he is, he sees a burning bush and he approaches the burning bush and God speaks to him from the burning bush. Look at what God says to him in Exodus 3 verse 7. 
Exodus 3, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land that he had promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So Moses has this conversation with God in Exodus chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, he returns to Egypt. He gets reconnected with his brother. Chapter 5, they go and they meet with Pharaoh. It does not go well. Pharaoh increases the oppression on his people. They used to have to make bricks, but the Egyptians provided the straw. Now they need to make bricks without the straw. They have to go and gather the straw while still producing the same amount of bricks. At this point, Moses is, all, is ready to, to throw in the towel. He's ready uh, to quit. We come to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Now, Exodus 6, 6 through 8 summarizes perfectly the thesis, the main point, the theme of the book of Exodus. God says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And, and I, will, I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God says that he is going to step in with great acts of judgment. These are the plagues, you know, the, the water turning into the blood, the, the, the frogs ju jumping around in everyone's bed, the gnats and the flies in everyone's faces, the livestock dying in the field, the boils on everyone's skin, the hail falling down from the sky, the locusts, the darkness. These are the great acts of judgment. Why? Because God, look at verse 7, he wants to take the people of Israel to be his people. People, and he wants to give them the land, notice in verse 8, the land that he swore. He made a promise to Abraham. He repeated it to Isaac and to Jacob. And God is faithful to his promises. So as the story unfolds for the next six chapters, you have all of these plagues, all of these great acts of judgment until we come to, come to the last and final plague in this rescue mission, the 10th plague. Turn with me to Exodus 12 and find verse 21. Exodus 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. Hyssop was sort of like a paintbrush. They're supposed to take blood from the lamb and put it on the lintel. Picture a door, the top a piece, the beam at the top of a door is called the lintel and then the two doorposts are the, are the vertical parts of a doorframe. And so they were to paint on all around the doorframe using the blood from this lamb. 
Then look at verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord, notice this, will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is why it's called the Passover lamb because the Lord passed over the homes that had blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. God did not pass over the people of Israel because they were more moral than the Egyptians. God did not pass over the the people of Israel because they were more religious or more committed or more devoted because they were the ones who were oppressed and God felt sorry for them because they were victims. That was not why God passed over them. He passed over them for one reason and one reason only, because the lamb died instead of them. They were no better. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt, it wasn't just the Egyptians, all the firstborn were to be killed on that night as a representative, the firstborn is the representative of the whole family. We all deserve to die because of our sin and our only hope is a substitution and God provided that lamb. Going all the way back to Genesis 22 when Abraham and Isaac are walking up Mount Moriah and Isaac asks, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide. And now, hundreds of years later, God is providing a lamb. We had one ram who died on Mount Moriah to save one child of Abraham now the children of Abraham are this massive multitude and these lambs die in their place. This substitutionary sacrifice. God passed over all because of grace. Then God has the people do something very odd in chapter 12 and verse 35. Chapter 12, verse 35 says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked, and they plundered the Egyptians. Now just picture this conversation. Picture a Hebrew slave trying to talk to their slave owner or the people that are oppressing them. So there, there's, there's an awkward dynamic there for sure. Also, understand that these nine plagues have been pummeling the people of Egypt and the people of Israel have been completely spared from it. And then, at, then picture them asking for all of their jewelry and all of their value. Let's just picture the conversation. Hey, you know, um, I know you're my boss, you're my slave master actually, and I know I have zero rights at all, and you're not entitled to pay me because of, because of all, what Pharaoh has done and all of this, but I was just, you know, I'm sorry, I can see your skin is really irritated from the boils and the, the gnats are flying around your face and there was frogs in your bed and all of that, but I was just, listen, could I please have your necklace? Could, could, could I please, could you just give me your, your brace? Could I please have all of the, that, that candlestick over there? Could I have all, like, could you just give me all of your value? And for whatever reason, Listen, people do not part from their wealth under normal circumstances. And these were not even normal circumstances. They had every reason to say no. And yet, miraculously, the people of Israel walked out of there with all of this, this enormous haul of wealthy uh, materials. Just remember that because we're going we're to come to that in a little while. So Pharaoh lets them go. They go, they've got all this gold, all this, all this wealth with them. 
God leads them, not directly to the promised land, but he leads them to the Red Sea. He actually has them camp right on the, right on the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. He comes charging back with all of his chariots to try to reclaim what he believed was his, to take back this massive labor force. And then in Exodus chapter 14, verses 13, look at what Moses says. In Exodus 14, 13, it says, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So many lessons here. God saves by substitution. God saves completely by grace and not by works. The, the people were, were to do nothing. They, they, they're standing there by the Red Sea. God didn't tell them, hey, bucket brigade, let's try to, let's try to drain this sea ourselves. See, that's not how, no, just stand there and watch God work. The Red Sea parts, Israel crosses on dry ground, the Egyptians come charging in after them. Once the Israelites make it to the other side, the Red Sea collapses on their enemies. And how do the people respond? Look at Exodus chapter 15 verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Do you see what they did? They sang. Listen, they had been saved, therefore they sang. Saved people sing. And that's what we see happening here. They, there was nothing else that they could do. God had done it all. And their part was to sing in worship and praise and adoration for this miraculous work of rescue that God had done. Saved people sing. Loved ones, we have been saved from something far worse than the Egyptians. We have such a greater reason to sing. Let me let me take this story and just place it in its New Testament context for you for a minute. Uh, I'm going to put some verses on the screen for you. Matthew 2, verse 14 and 15, talking about Joseph and saying, he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Just like Moses was saved from the genocidal policy of a paranoid ruler, Jesus was also saved from the clutches of Herod, who was killing all of the babies in Bethlehem. Just like it, Israel was brought out of Egypt. Jesus spent time in Egypt before he came to rescue his people. Then look at Luke chapter 9, verse 29 to, to 31. Luke chapter 9, when Jesus is on the mountain with his three disciples and his face changes and his clothes are glowing white. And it says, as he was praying, the, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. For behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. I'll introduce you to Elijah later. But here's Moses talking to Jesus in the New Testament on the mountain. It says, they, they appeared in glory and spoke of his 
departure. Remember what exodus means in Greek, departure. Remember that the New Testament is written in Greek. The word in Greek right there in your Bibles is exodus. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus came to be a greater Moses, to lead the people of God on a greater exodus. Exodus from what? Departure from what? John 8 verse 31, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. As the story of Exodus unfolds, we're going to see the people needed to be saved from far much more than just Egypt. They needed to be saved from their sin and that is exactly what Jesus came to do to give his life, to die in our place. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus died. He was crucified on Passover. He is the Passover lamb. And then at the, the end of the story in Revelation chapter 13, or Revelation 15 verse 3, it says, they sang Sorry, they sing the song of Moses. This, remember, Moses sang a song in Exodus 15. And in worship of Jesus, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, Jesus, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Saved people sing. They sing in Exodus 15. They sing in Revelation 15. The people of Israel sang, we need to be a people who sing. If you were sitting on your couch doing nothing while the worship team was up here pouring their hearts out, praising the Lord. That's a problem. If your lips are not moving, if there aren't sounds coming out of your mouth, I don't care if you're alone in your house. I don't, I don't care if you don't like the sound of your voice. Just crank up the TV a little louder. Saved people sing. Saved people sing when they're alone in their home. They sing when they're alone in their car. Saved people sing in church. Saved people sing when they watch church at home. Saved people sing. It's what we do. It's what we do. You read the book of Revelation, all we do all day in heaven pretty much is just sing. We've got the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, we're going to sing this song, we're going to sing that song, then the angels sing, then they're going to have a turn singing. We're, we're, you better get used to it. Saved people sing because we rejoice not in what we have done. We rejoice in what God has done. A God who is determined to deliver his people because he desires to dwell with his people. So, we're done with the first part of the story, the, the rescue. Now we're going to turn to the rules. So the people have been saved and now they're singing, but how then should they live? Well, what kind of a life should, should they live as a result? So now we come to the rules. Let me just kind of geographically place this story for you here on the screen. So they left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, and now they are at Mount Sinai. Now, on their way there in chapter 16, 17, and 18, they start to grumble and complain. They don't have enough water. They don't have enough food. God causes water to come out of a rock and bread to fall down from the sky. They have enemies attack them, the Amalekites, and God works miraculously through that. They have structural problems. Moses is about to have a nervous breakdown 
because of all the pressure on him as a leader. And Jethro steps in and helps him with that. Then we come to Exodus 19 and 20, and here they are at Mount Sinai, and the presence of God appears in this massive storm cloud, and his voice thunders at them, speaking to them the Ten Commandments. Look at how the Ten Commandments begin in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Acts 20, or sorry, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, so the people are listening at the base of the mountain, and God is speaking the words. He speaks the Ten Commandments to them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he lays out the the Ten Commands, beginning with, you shall have no other gods before me. Notice the, the sequence here. The rescue came before the rules. Grace comes before law. God did not come and deliver the Ten Ten Commandments while they were in Egypt and say, hey, good luck with this. If you obey, maybe I'll set you free. Well, we'll see how it goes. No, God says, no, I set you free. I rescued you. It was all of grace. The lamb died instead of you. You stood there and did nothing. All you did was sing at the end. Now, here is how you ought to live. Grace came before law. The rescue came before the rules. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments. Then he lays down really case law, specific situational uh, uh, applications of the law in chapter 21, 22, and 23. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter uh, 24. Exodus 24 and verse 4. It says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So they they make sacrifices to God in light of all that he has revealed. Then Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood and threw it against the altar that he had just made. Notice this, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And the people said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. They say, okay, we got it. We got 10 things, we got 10 commandments. And it's okay, we we can do that. We will, all that you've commanded, we will do. And then they say, and we will be obedient if they only knew. Verse eight, and Moses took the blood. Notice this, this is It's kind of strange. He took the blood and he threw it on them. He threw it on the people and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So here's that word covenant again. Remember, we've been tracing this theme of covenant throughout the Bible. And so there was the Noahic covenant. The sign was the rainbow and it was unilateral. It was just, it was really just a promise that God had made to Noah and to all of creation. Then there's the Abrahamic covenant with the sign of circumcision. Again, it was just God making a promise to Abraham. But now we have the covenant with the, the Mosaic covenant or the covenant made with the people of Israel. The sign is the Sabbath. That's in Exodus 31 uh, verse 13. But it's bilateral. God says he's going to do some things, but the people, for the first time in, this, in, in these covenant relationships, the people actually promise as well. They say, we'll be obedient. But then how does that actually turn out from that for them in this bilateral a covenant? Well, we'll see 
in just a little while. But before we get to that, as we think about the law, we got to remember the rules, the rules came after the rescue. And so again, let's put this part of the story, let's frame it in its proper New Testament context. Matthew 5 verse 17. Look at this verse on your screen. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to replace the law that was given at Sinai. He came to fulfill it. He fulfilled it really in two ways. He fulfilled it by living an obedient life. He's the only one who actually did obey it. All the people of Israel are like, we'll obey all that you said we will do. They didn't have a clue how they were going to fail in, 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 in just next to no time. They're going to be committing idolatry. But Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law. Not only that, Jesus also paid the penalty that all of us deserve for breaking the law. So he fulfilled the law in that way as well. Remember Genesis chapter 15, where the animals were cut in half and split in two. This, is, this covenant happened before the Mosaic Covenant, before the law. And God walked through the the flaming torch and the cloud of smoke walked through those dead animals saying, I am the one who is going to fulfill this covenant. And the people did not follow through on their promise in Exodus chapter 24, but God promised to walk through. And it was in Jesus and his suffering and dying on the cross where that covenant is ultimately fulfilled. Jesus, on the night when he, when he was with his disciples before he went to the cross, in Matthew 26, when they're celebrating the Passover together, Matthew 26, verse 27, it says, He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, notice this, my blood of the covenant. That's the language Moses used when he was throwing the blood on the people saying, no, it's on you. And no, Jesus is saying, no, no, here is my blood. I am going to die. My blood is going to be shed, even though all of you deserve to die because you've broken your promise to God. It's going to be on me. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then Romans 10 verse 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end doesn't mean that the law no longer, no, no longer exists or that we no longer read the law or follow the law. When he's saying it ends, it's saying it, it point, the law pointed to Jesus because he's the ultimate fulfillment. And so we are, we are no longer under this Mosaic covenant. The promise made to Abraham trumps this bilateral agreement between God and Israel. Christ fulfilled the requirements of that covenant. Now we still read the law because we want to know God's heart. We want to know his character. The law is still vitally important for us to understand. But because the more that we understand it, the more we understand Romans 10, 4, that Christ is the end of the law. It all points to him. So we have rescue. We have rules. We see that God is determined to deliver his people because he desires to dwell among his people. And that brings us lastly to the third section, relationship. Relationship. Rescue, rules, and relationship. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25 and find verse 1. 
It says, then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Notice this, the, the, the contribution was not mandatory. It was just whoever had their heart stirred to give. That's how giving is supposed to be in the church as well. No one's pressuring anyone. It's only those whose hearts are stirred. Verse three, and this contribution you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze. So God had a purpose in having the people of Israel ask the Egyptians for all of their jewelry because he wanted it for a purpose. Well, what are they going to do with this stuff? Verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle or tent or dwelling place and all of its furniture so that you can make it. So what we see here is God's desire for relationship. He, he didn't just want to take the people out of Egypt. No, he wanted not just to take the people out of Egypt. He wanted to put himself in among the people. And this tabernacle was how he was going to do it. And this gold that they took from the Egyptians was to be used for the construction of this tabernacle. Now, this last third of the book of Genesis can really be divided into, into two parts. We have, and this is the part where if you're reading through the Bible, this is the part where people normally fall off because there's a lot of re repetition. It's kind of confusing. It's really detailed. So in chapters 24 to 31, we have tabernacle instructions. God tells Moses how to build the tabernacle. And then at the end, it's the actual construction. But right in the middle is the golden calf. And so this is the flow. And if you understand, then, then when you see this picture, you understand why there does seem to be a lot of repetition. Because there is. God tells them how to build it. And then they actually build it. And I'll explain in a minute why the golden calf is right in the middle of that. So let's look at this, at this tabernacle that they're building. He starts from the inside and works his way out. He starts with the most important piece of furniture in Exodus 25 verse 10. Look at Exodus chapter 25 verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So God has them make a box to make an ark. And, and th this is the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And in this box, he's going to put the Book of the Covenant. He's going to put the Ten Commandments. There's going to be some other artifacts from their journeys that are going to be put in there. And then there is a, a lid on this box that God calls the mercy seat. And there's two cherubim whose wings are, are, are pointing towards one another on top of it. And look at Exodus 25 verse 22. Exodus 25, 22, God says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, that's the lid on the box, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, was the, was the symbolic place where God was going to meet with Moses. David called it in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 2. He called it God's footstool. The idea is that God's throne is in heaven, but his feet were going to touch this box. 
The, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be this place where heaven connects with earth. His throne is in heaven, but his footstool is the Ark of the Covenant above where these cherubim are on the top of this box. Now, where did we last hear about cherubim in the Bible? I just, just want to ask you that. You just try to think, think through the storyline of Scripture. When did we last hear about, about cherubim? Then there's a, a table that's built in chapter 23. This is another piece of furniture. Then look at verse 31. It says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold, and the lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Then look at verse 32. And there shall be six branches going out of its side. Branches. And as the description goes on, there's flowers on the branches. And so there's something, there's something, this lampstand looks like a tree. So we've got cherubim and we've got a tree. Now look at chapter 26. In chapter 26, they start, God starts describing the materials for the tent, like the actual, the actual veil and the actual coverings for the tent. There's a, there's a, a national park in Israel that has a, uh, like a, like a big model of the tabernacle. You can see that on the screen here. And so God describes the, the actual linens and materials that were to be used for the tent. Look at chapter 26 in verse 31. All of the curtains, all of the, all of the different parts of the temple. It says, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. I'm in Exodus 26, 31. And fine twine linen, and it shall be made with cherubim. There's cherubim again, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang the veil from its clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. So the ark is to be put behind this veil, a veil that has cherubim on it, and the veil shall separate you from, separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So if you haven't put it together already, this idea of cherubim sort of guarding the ark of the, te- uh, the, uh, the ark, the box, uh, guarding the top, the cherubim on the veil that is guarding the different barriers in the temple. And then this lampstand that looks like a tree. Remember the last time we heard about cherubim? Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, Genesis 3 says he drove out the man to the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away to guard the tree of life. So here, God says, I want to dwell among the people. And I'm going I'm to have you build something that looks like a tree and it's going to be guarded by cherubim. I want to welcome you back into Eden. Do you know which way Adam and Eve left Eden? Through the east. Do you know where the entrance to the the tabernacle, where it was always supposed to be set up so that you entered in from? From the east. God is bringing them back to Eden. In chapter 27, we have an altar that's made. Chapter 28, the garments for the priest. Chapter 30, the altar for incense and the basin. These are all of the, all of the um, uh, pieces of furniture. So you have the ark and the holy of holies, then an incense altar, a table, the lampstand that's kind of like a tree. It's got branches, holy place, the courtyard with the basin and the altar. You see, God calls this a dwelling place. It's called a sanctuary. Do you see? 
a lot of the people of Israel in their tents would have had a lot of these things, a table to eat on, a, a, a chair. I mean, with, with the tabernacle, there's just a footstool. There's no chair because God's seated in heaven. But you've got furniture to sit on, a table to eat at. You've got light from the lampstand. You've got fire for food. You've got a basin for, this, this is God's dwell. This is like a, a dwelling place. When they were looking at this furniture, they would have made the connection to the Garden of Eden, but they also would have made a connection like, this is just someone, this is where someone lives. This is where God is going to dwell among us. So God is laying out this plan for Moses. Again, all we're hearing right now are the instructions. Nothing has been built yet. God, is, his intent is to dwell among his people, to return them to what life was like in Eden before they sinned. It's like God is doing a restart in creation. So Israel is sort of like a new Adam and, and they're being put into a promised land and they've been rescued from slavery and God's starting fresh. But just like creation in chapters one and two resulted in fall, here we have even the plans for creation of this dwelling place and we see another fall into sin. Turn, to me to Exodus, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together and Aaron gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Exodus 32, verse 4, and he received, notice this, the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. What was that gold intended for? That gold was intended to be used to build the tabernacle. That gold had been predicted all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, 400 years before it happened, when, 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 when God told Abraham that they would be afflicted, but they would leave with much, with much possessions. Exodus 12, when they asked the people of Egypt, can we have your gold? Loved ones, we see the people of Israel fall into the sin of idolatry. Just like Adam and Eve saw the fruit and wanted that because they thought that is what could give them control and security. The people of Israel wanted an idol. They wanted something tangible that they could look to. All the while, God is planning on giving them this dwelling place, this promise of him living among them. What do we see from this passage? Well, we see, we see the reality of human nature. And we, we see the truth that we are not merely just products of our environment. We saw it with Noah. The whole planet had been wiped out and cleansed by this flood. And within a matter of days, Noah is already lying drunk in his tent. Even with a purified world, Noah's heart still needed to be purified. And here we see the people of Israel. They've been taken out of oppression. They're no longer victims. They're, they're no longer being, having things lorded over them by these evil oppressors. And now they're finally free. But they're not merely products of their environment. They're out of that negative environment. And yet now they still commit a heinous sin. So then God tells Moses in Exodus 33, Verse three, he says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. I'll still fulfill my promise, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. You see, 
God says, listen, you guys can go, but we're, we're not building this tabernacle thing. I'm not going to dwell among you because you know what? I'm just going to end up destroying you because, because you are continually rebelling against me, even in light of everything that I have done. I, I rescued you. I gave you my rules. The first rule was no other gods before me. The second one is about making a carved image, and you, you broke one and two. And then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. It's a picture of Jesus. He stands in between the people and God, and he prays, and God agrees to go with them. And then Moses, in this, in this, in this overwhelming expression of gratitude for, for God, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And then we come to Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8, where he hides Moses in the cleft of, of the rock. And it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin like the golden calf, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So let me take you back to this diagram of instruction, golden calf. See why this is so important? Because, because of the sin of the golden calf, the whole project was left in limbo. Will God dwell among us? But because of the mediation of Moses, we see the instructions. And then that's why they go to all this detail to describe the tabernacle being constructed because it was such good news that God was going to continue on with his plan to dwell among his people. Then we come to the end of the book of Exodus chapter 40. It says, then the cloud, I'm in Exodus chapter 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That massive cloud that was on top of Mount Sinai moves from the top of Mount Sinai and it moves to cover the tent of the meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that's the story of Exodus. He rescued his people. He gave them his rules. They broke his rules. But he persisted in giving them relationship. He gave them freedom. He gave them his law. And he gave them himself. And then again, We've looked at rescue through the lens of the New Testament. We've looked at rules through the lens of the New Testament. Now let's look at relationship through the lens of the New Testament. John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Remember Exodus 34, the glory of God filled the tabernacle. We have seen his glory. When we see Jesus, we see the glory of God Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came and dwelt among us. He is the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate dwelling place of God, and he came to dwell among us. 
And then the Apostle Paul reflecting on what Jesus has accomplished for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Apostle Paul here quotes Exodus chapter 29. He quotes the the idea of the tabernacle and he says, he says, I will dwell among the people. And Paul says, you, you and I, we are the temple of the living God. Jesus came to dwell as a tabernacle among us. We are the tabernacle. God dwells among us by his spirit. And then ultimately fast forward to Revelation, the end of the story, Revelation 21, three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. God's aim is to dwell among his people. He delivers us from sin, but that's not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is that he would dwell among us by his spirit now here on earth and then in the new heavens and the new earth with his presence actually being among his people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray right now that as we get ready to respond to your great act of salvation and rescue among your people, Lord, I pray that we would be a people that lift up our voices and sing your praise. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would, by your power and by your grace, work in us and through us, Lord. God, we recognize that you are omnipresent. You are present everywhere. That's what makes the reality of the tabernacle so mind-blowing, that you would have your feet touched down right above the Ark of the Covenant. Your throne is in heaven, Lord, but you choose to manifest your presence locally. And God, we thank you that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the tabernacle that your presence lives among us. And God, I pray that you would draw near to us, Lord God. I pray, Lord, as saved people sing, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would sing out your praise right now in this moment, loving you, worshiping you, marveling at your rescue and at your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do, Lord, alone or with our families in our living rooms or at our tables, Lord. I pray that there would be an eruption of praise that saved people would sing and marvel and rejoice at your saving work in us, Lord. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.